0: Hey folks, Ned here. Over the past 25 years, I've talked with thousands of parents of high school students, parents who care deeply about their kids' education and how they deal with stress and the pressure to succeed. But these parents need to work with a team they trust won't just pile on more pressure to achieve better grades and scores. This is why I started Prep Matters in 1997 to create a different kind of experience for test preparation, tutoring, and college admissions planning. This podcast and my books reflect our company's philosophy and approach to helping students. If you have a high school student and would like to talk about putting in place a plan, please get in touch with us. Visit our website at prepmatters.com or call 301-951-0350. That's 301-951-0350. Thanks, and now back to our show. Is that sort of the idea that the, you, you and I both have an A in, in calculus, but, you know, you have an SAT math score of 700 and I have 500, and that's a kind of corroborating evidence. Is it that is, kind of the it's idea? the
1: check-in, right? And, and hmm.
0: I talk about this in terms of the book, uh, in terms of how
1: they use test scores, right? Because I, I think that, you know, parents and students really think that the, it's the test score that really matters. Yes, it matters, but in consultation with everything else.
0: Welcome to the self driven Child Podcast. I'm your host, Ned Johnson, and co-author with Dr. William Stickstrude of the books, The self driven Child, The Science and Sense of Giving Your Kids More Control Over Their Lives, and What Do You Say? How to Talk with Kids to Build Motivation, Stress Tolerance, and a Happy Home. You probably know that for many colleges, it's a lot harder to get in than it was decades ago when you applied. And not only does it seem like colleges are trying to accept almost nobody who applies to them, it's also increasingly unclear and opaque of what's going on. How does the sausage get made? What's the magic going on behind the curtain? Which is why I'm delighted to revisit this conversation with nationally recognized college admissions expert, Jeff Selengo, a New York Times bestselling author of several books, including Who Gets In and Why. Jeff was quite literally in the room where it happened as an embedded reporter during an entire college admissions cycle. It's a great book. I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope it helps you and informs you the way it informed me. Take a listen. To start, why did you write this book now? So a couple of summers ago,
1: I had a chance to reread The Gatekeepers, a great book by Jack Steinberg, formerly of the, of the New York Times, which went into the admissions process at Wesleyan back in the late 1990s, published around 2000. And as I was reading that, I realized 20 years ago, a lot has changed in the admissions process. Uh, that was largely before the huge growth in the Common App, uh, the huge growth in online applications, uh, and you know applying to many more schools than students were even applying to 20 years ago. So, and a big increase in test optional. A lot of ch- has changed, I think, in admissions and a lot hasn't changed in admissions over the last 20 years. And I thought it was time to look back at the admissions process from the inside. So that's
0: the, one of the biggest impetuses for, for doing this book now. That's great. I know, I know in your book, you talked about the report in 1961 about the, the, the growing hysteria of college admissions. And it, <laughs> so to your point, I think a lot has... Um, It seems to me a lot of the trends that were problematic in the past have only become more so. Uh, though in your book, you do talk about some of the things that have changed for the better. So I look forward to digging into those. Um, is there, is there, uh, are you, what makes you particularly invested in this story? I know you have, uh, you have your own young people who will be facing this at, at some point. Is that part of the equation for you to understand well, this better? It was, it was part of the equation.
1: I do have two young kids, although they're yeah. still in elementary school. So things might change a lot by the time they're ready for college. I've had a lot of friends whose kids have gone through it. Uh, But the other interesting thing to me is that I've been covering higher education for more than 20 years Uh, You know used to be editor of the chronicle of higher education worked there for 16 years in a variety of roles Uh, I rarely wrote about admissions. So it was kind of a new world for me And so as a reporter Especially when you're in education and you kind of feel like you've covered every story there is to cover uh, over 20 years You're always looking for something new and for me this was a whole new world
0: that I was exploring in terms of college admissions. So it was it was a challenge for me in some ways. And one of the things that's so fun about the book is is of course, rather than being a reporter on the outside as you were for so many years, you got to be you know the look behind the curtain really as an, an embedded reporter. Uh, for 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 three universities uh, going through this admission cycle, it's pretty. Uh, um, it was eye opening to me, as I'm sure it will be to all the folks who pick up this great book. Um, so so along those lines, what would surprise? What do you think would surprise students and parents the most about how admissions decisions are actually made?
1: So I think a couple of things. Uh, first, of uh, how quickly they need to move through the application pool. The places that I was embedded in, University of Washington, Davidson College, Emory University, get tens of thousands of applications for a very small number of admits and eventually a small number of enrollees. Uh, And so I think that most students and parents don't understand the breadth and depth of those applicant pools. They have a sense of their own high school, maybe a sense of their own community, but just multiply that across every community, every school district, across the entire country and, of course, around the entire world. So I think that's one of the things they don't quite get is how much work has to be done in a very short amount of time. And as I point out in the book, one of the things that admissions deans and admissions officers haven't quite figured out yet how to do is add more days into January, February and March when they're largely making these decisions in, in regular decisions. So I think that's, that's one thing. Second is we keep talking about holistic admissions. You know, it is a term that's thrown around a lot by colleges and, and universities. And I, I think that parents and students tend to pay a lot of attention to certain things in the application, but they don't think of the application as, a, as their story. Mm. And I think in this rush to apply to, you know, a dozen schools or even eight schools or whatever you're going to apply to... and I saw this in some of the students I followed, they're they're cutting and pasting from an essay they wrote for Boston College and using it for Emory. Uh, They're, you know, throwing together their list of activities because they think that, you know, you mostly should be focused on, you know, certain parts of the application. And what they forget to do is think about the totality of their story. What do they want admissions officers to know about them?
0: Well, the one thing that there, I so often when I work with, with students have the, the conversation goes the other way where students are like, what did, what do they want? from me, right? What am I supposed to tell? What am I supposed to deliver to them?" And it, it sounds like their thinking is sort of backwards on that. Rather than presenting who they are, they're trying to figure out how to, how to put together this pastiche that uh, passes the gatekeepers.
1: Well, and as you know, Ned, I, and, and this is a point that I make in the book often, is that every institution, every college university out there has a list of priorities about how, that they want to achieve in admissions. They differ between institutions and they differ year by year. And if students and applicants are trying to figure out like, what the college wants, it's, it's nearly impossible in some cases. And by the way, every college wants something different and they might want something different next year than they want it last year. And so I always tell students, you know, figure out what you want, figure out who you are, put your best foot forward and kind of let the chips fall where they may.
0: Well, that I think I think is one of the most important points that you make in the book, and I think would really be eye-opening to to folks is the degree, the degree to which college admissions one really is a business that that colleges are a business, and that rather than the admissions folks being um, sort of these these um, evaluators of of, of merit. They're really trying to figure out: Does Jeff meet? Does Ned meet? Does Sally meet the specific needs that we have? And of course, as you point out, they're not the needs of the emissions people; they're the needs of the administration. Right. Um, in, in the as you say, they change every year. Can you, can you expand on that a little bit? Because I think that's a really important point for well,
1: folks. And I think you point out a, a tension, right? Because most people, you know, the, I met some great admissions officers uh, while reporting this book at the three universities and other places uh, that I was, uh, uh, that I touched upon in, in, in the book. And, and, and there is this tension between folks who get into admissions, largely because they want to work with students. And then they get into the admissions office and they're given this list of priorities by presidents and trustees, largely, about what they want. And what are those priorities? It could be, you know, we need more uh, men than women um, because, as you well know, uh, there's many, especially at selective colleges now, there's many more women than, uh, than men. And so they need to try to get those numbers more more even. Uh, there's a lot of focus, obviously, on, on first generation and, and students of color, rightly so. I think at at selective colleges now, there's a big uh, focus on geographic diversity from around the U.S., but also from around the, the world. Uh, at many of these places, athletics, even at Division three, plays a huge, huge role. And so at some point, you still have to fill that Pitchers, uh, the roster for pitchers and catchers on your on your baseball team, and so that's critical. Uh, At many places, money matters, right? They so they do take uh, they do take need uh, they're need aware and they do take need into into account. So there's all these things, and when you realize when you put this on a matrix or when you look at this list and you see how many spots they actually have, you start to realize that they only have so much room for the tens of thousands of applicants uh, that they get.
0: And that was a real eye-opener. I mean, I I always knew the sense of it, but some of the numbers were really staggering. Uh, I'm an alum of Williams College, so I will take glee and and point a a finger at Amherst, whom you you profile with there. But you talk about the, if I remember the, the, the numbers right, Jeff, that in a given class, They would have sixty-seven folks who, you know, coaches got their picks, as it were, and then another sixty to ninety students who would somehow be coded as we really want these folks, and so we're looking for athletics, exactly for for athletics. Thank you. So we're looking at one hundred twenty-seven to one hundred fifty-seven kids out of a class that ends up being. Five hundred or just under five hundred, yep. and then of course, you, you since you brought it up, you know the the, the movement, and I agree with you that in the right direction towards greater diversity, both socioeconomic and, and uh, uh, folks who've been underrepresented for a long while at some of these elite colleges. You talk about you know Posse and QuestBridge, uh, and that they sort of have these very strong relationships, including with Amherst, saying you know here's the deal: we will bring you really talented um, kids of color who will do well and but, kind of here are our terms. Uh, and so, so they end up having influence in the emissions process, probably the same way the coaches do. And so, all of a sudden, to your point, you, you know, if, if you have an emissions rate, you make this in the book, if there's an emissions rate of 20%, my random, Ned, random guy Ned, my chance is not 20%. It could be mm-hmm. exactly. wildly different depending on, am I the pitcher on the baseball team or just another guy in the pile.
1: Well, and, and I think the Amherst example is, is is really interesting because not only do they reserve all these spots for athletes, but Amherst over the last... Couple of years, actually more than a couple of years, probably over the last decade, has really been focused on increasing its numbers of first-gen students and students of color Mm -hmm. and so forth. They've done a really good job, job. and they've done a really good job with it. But but their athletic teams are are largely white and wealthier, and and that's from their own numbers, by the way. Uh, You know, ninety percent, you know, in some cases ninety percent white, uh, and and probably less than five percent low income income students. So what it ends up happening at a place like Amherst is you have a very bifurcated pool as a result or a very bifurcated class. And so, uh, so they have to achieve their d- goals on diversity through the non-athletes largely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what ends up happening is all your athletes are white uh, or largely white and, and all your non-athletes are more students of color, more low-income students. And so you know, and I point this out in the book. If you're a white student, and not an athlete, it's going to be pretty tough for you to get into a place like like Amherst. And so, I think these are the things that are happening behind the scenes that parents and students never quite get to
0: see or or understand. We and it's it's a great point because you know you write in the book that as a society we 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 t- like to think of higher education. Is really the bedrock of meritocracy in our country. But, but you write that it, it, it never was that, and, 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 and perhaps more dispiritingly, likely never will, will be. be. I mean, it's, um, it's a challenge. Uh, the, so the, the, the third point in, in those, you talk about a- athletics and diversity and and money. And you write in the book that in admission uh, in circles that it's a dirty little secret that money matters. And I suppose that shouldn't be a surprise, but but can you really can you talk more about how it matters and, and why? Because um, I mean, we obviously think, well, if I have more money, they want me. But why is why is that so important? Why is money such an overweighted factor? Well, because they they need to pay for this class, right? In financial aid, in most of these uh,
1: institutions. Have large endowments, especially the selectives, but they don't have a large enough endowment to really pay for the financial aid that they clearly have to provide for the students that they that they want. And so, lar- many of them discount tuition in in some way. And so, you you end up with the uh, two groups of colleges at the selective level, and those are what are called the knee blind uh, institutions that don't take uh, or say they don't take. Uh, finances into consideration in admissions, and I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, and then the need-aware uh, institutions that do at some point in the process look at ability to, to pay. Uh, and in the book, I, I kind of go into detail uh, with how Lafayette College, uh, which was not one of the three because the uh, the other two privates that I was looking at are are need blind, and so I went to Lafayette College and looked at how they did it, which is largely at the end of the process as, as they 're kind of shaping the class that 's when they really look at ability to pay and and they're very clear on the students that they kind of kick out of the the pool uh, because they don't have an a, an ability to pay, even though they can largely succeed at a place like uh, like Lafayette now. Even schools, though, are need-blind, so Emory and, and Davidson, I mean, there's a lot they know about these students. Uh, you know, they know, obviously, they clearly know your zip code. They know what your parents do. Uh, you know, that's on a common app, right? And that's one of the questions that uh, when the admissions officers are going through the application, somebody will say, oh, what, what do the parents do? Uh, you know, largely, they want to know what kind of opportunities students had, but, you know, they'll say, oh, they're a vice president at X or whatever. You know these things, you're not calculating them as much as maybe a a need-aware school is doing. But, you know, Emory pointed out, for example, that in early decision, and this is largely, by the way, where need-blind schools make up the money they need to make up, and that's an early decision because the early decision pools at most of these selective universities are made up of people that can pay, um, you know, full price, close to full price, and don't need as much aid. And, in fact, at a place like Emory, as I point out in the book – their early decision pool has half the need uh, as their regular decision pool, right? So, so what they do, what Emory and Davidson and all these schools that have very robust early decision pools, is that they're they're taking more and more students in early decision. In some cases, more than fifty percent of their class overall, in order to have the money that have that pot of money that enables them to. Maybe go a little further afield in terms of what they need to pay for in regular decision.
0: Well, let me repeat that back. So, if I if I hear, understand that correctly, um, universities are tend to select more people, admit more people at early decision, effectively as a way to secure the the resources, right? Yep. That that then allow them to be uh, to meet other priorities, to extend financial aid, um, and, and perhaps most importantly, to know that they can extend financially. Because one of the, you know, the, the points to make, if they, if they get this pot of gold and they know those folks are coming and they're going to be full pay, then they know how much money they have to spend on kids who need financial aid. Exactly. They have a lot
1: more flexibility than in the spring to maybe spend more money uh, on students that they really want in, in, regular, in, in regular decision. And so that's why we've seen, and I, I talk about this in the book about early decision. Early decision after the 2008 financial crisis they used to maybe take a third of their class, uh, enroll a third of their class through early decision. Uh, after the 2008 recession, particularly that year, uh, in the fall of, of 2008, when everybody was really worried about uh, admissions and ability to pay, a number of selective schools decided to up their numbers in early decision, the, hmm. uh, the numbers of students that they would enroll. So they went from maybe a third closer to 50%. someone over 50%. What was interesting to me, though, in looking at the numbers is they never went back down. So over the last decade, essentially, they've been much closer to, you know, in the 40%, close to 50%. So close to half of their class is enrolled by the time you as a student might be
0: applying for regular decision? Well, this ends up being really tricky, right? I mean, we, I mean, we know that, um, you know, colleges need money in order to, f- uh, you know, help other kids you know, pay. I mean, I was a Pell Grant kid when I was in school and I was mindful that the folks had a lot more resources than I did, but I also know that I sure wasn't paying anything close to the to the sticker price. But we have this, we have this tear point, this tension of the ability to pay and also the ability... To get admitted, and so if colleges have gone from a third to fifty to sixty percent of of admitting people or the decision, most of whom um, because they can are you know are, are are full pay folks. On the one hand, that's allowing colleges to secure the resources to to make it college available to folks who otherwise couldn't pay it. But on the other hand. It's giving up a higher and higher number of slots to pin people who are high socioeconomic background and leaving fewer and fewer spots for really talented, less affluent kids.
1: It is. And, it, it, and I think that you really hit at the heart of the tension that is in so many admissions offices at selective colleges is that this this tr- the offs that you're constantly making. Um, in admissions, right? do we take um, do we take kids that uh, you know we need to offer more A to uh, versus the kids who we have to offer less A to right? do we take do we take a chance on students maybe with lower test scores but that we think have the ability to succeed here, or do we go with those kids that you know we've always gone with who have those higher test scores for or from high schools that we know well right it's It's a constant set of trade offs, especially as these institutions, are trying to you know diversify their student body uh, are under pressure financially. Uh, I think that's going to be particularly true in the in the year ahead given COVID. Uh, so I think that you're you're constantly seeing these these t- this tension play out in um, admissions offices, and of course, it's all coming down at the same time when they're just getting more and more applications to deal with uh, and 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 in all in a short amount of time and so that to me is what um, these are impossible jobs in many areas, right <laughs> uh, and then again, I appreciate what what they have to do i mean uh you know they're 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 spending a lot of time with with high school students and they're and they're trying to get more applications from, from these schools that never send them. But then when they get them, those, are, those applications are going up against schools that they know well, uh, where the students test well, uh, and where they have a, you know a variety of courses and AP courses and so forth. And so it's always this trade-off that's happening.
0: Uh, Within these admissions offices. Well, let's let's talk about that idea of testing well, because you know I think the two big, um, probably maybe three big um, forces or or changes really that have I think come to the fore in the last couple three years are one, an an increasing seemingly or at least stated increased commitment to diversity, both uh, uh, racial and and socioeconomic, by by selective colleges. also, a move away from test, you know, move towards test optional, and that was that was strong and getting stronger even before COVID. Um, but now, with the acceleration of COVID, is you know everybody's test optional, um, and then of course all the problems of of COVID. Um, where, you know, you don't have a crystal ball, but when you when you think about this fall, I mean, do you think those trends continue? Do you, do you, I mean do do, do you see do, does anything get better? Do things only get worse? Uh, so it's,
1: this fall is going to be really interesting to me because you are, many institutions are going to have to revisit how they've done their work for, for yeah. years, right? Because they're going to be missing. So you have all these schools now that have gone test optional. Uh, it's unclear what, uh, how many test scores they'll have, uh, depending on what happens in, in the fall. You have uh, a number of schools that win, obviously high schools that went online. Uh, many move to pass fail. Same thing now may happen this fall with the fall of senior year. You have students who were missing out on summer opportunities, extracurricular activities. So you have all these assets, as I call them, that come with the application. All these data points that admissions offices have long relied on that are going to be missing in some cases or pieces of them are going to be missing Mm -hmm. for this incoming class. And so they're going to have to revisit and, and decide, well, do we go further back and now into the, you know, so at Emory, for example, they really don't even look at the freshman year of high school. They only really look at the, in terms of grades, but will they do that now? Will they go back a little further to have a better sense of, of the trajectory of, of the student? Uh, you know, will they look more at, at essays and recommendations uh, than they will, uh, because they might be missing some, from some test scores, obviously, and, and some grades. So I think there's going to be, So what's going to be interesting to me is what they do on the fly Mm -hmm. this fall. But then once they get the class formed and enrolled, what changes then stick for the longer term? Now, admissions offices don't like to make big moves from year to year, right? But they want to see how these things turn out. So I don't know if we're going to see massive changes a year from now based on what happened with this incoming COVID class. But trust me, these schools are going to be tracking these students very closely once they show up on campus. Do those (laughs) students do well in their first-year classes? Are they retained at the same rate as previous students? Do they end up graduating? They're going to be looking at their grades, at their success rates once they're on campus. And then I bet in a couple of years, we're going to start to see some other changes in their admissions policies based on, hey, did we form a class that ended up succeeding just like everybody else, without the assets that we had of everybody else, maybe we don't need to ask for those things anymore. So that's Hmm. where I think perhaps test optional, perhaps thinking differently about grades or essays or whatever it might be, that's where I think we really start to see the impact
0: of this coming year in terms of admissions. So I should start polishing my resume because I may, <laughs> I may need a new gig. But yeah, no, it's a, it's a really good point because I I think if, um, I mean, as many colleges and universities have uh, done that have gone test optional, they've been able to track kids who've come through with test scores in case they've come through without test scores and see that they can perform comparably. Um, do you have a guess as to, to why, even when colleges or universities have done that and seen the success of kids who were admitted without test scores, why haven't they gone to test blind? Why haven't they thrown them out the window altogether?
1: This is why I don't think you necessarily have to <laughs> polish your resume because I, I think testing's still going to be here to stay. Um, for the, at least in, at the scale we have it. And I think that's the issue, right? Is that they feel comfortable with admitting a percentage of their class without test scores. But the entire class at these selective schools, I think that makes them a little nervous uh, in terms of trying to compare uh, students across the country, right? We have you know, 30,000, 40,000 school districts, grading schemes. I, I think that really does worry them Without having any sort of foundational knowledge of how that student will do, so I think we're gonna we may move to more test optional schools, mm-hmm. but I don't think we're going to be moving, especially at the highly selective institutions. Uh, we're going to be moving to more test blind schools.
0: Um, is in, is, in is the, that the, sort of the idea that the, you you and I both have an A in in calculus, but you know you have an SAT math score of seven hundred and I have five hundred, and that's kind of corroborating evidence. Is that it is. Kind of, it's it the is? check-in, right? And and I talk about this in terms of the book, uh, in terms
1: of how they use test scores, right? Because I I think that you know parents and students really think that the, it's the test score that really matters. Yes, it matters, but in consultation with everything else, and in the way that I saw test scores used was as a as kind of a check-in. Like we we don't quite you know we don't know this high school, uh, or we we're not quite sure this these this. Person's grades are all over the place. Right. So it's, it's kind of as a as a check in, as a balance wheel against everything else that's happening in that application. And so if schools in the future will be missing that number, it's going to be hard to balance what is what else is in that student's application with
0: anything that has like more of a national norm to it. <laughs> Well, and this goes back to your, to your point about students really telling their stories. That if this year, if they if they can't check all the boxes, then arguably, there a student being really thoughtful about the story that she tells becomes that much more valuable to her, right? To to really help a, a admissions person know, you know, know who she is. And because one of the things I think you do a really nice job in the book Jeff is 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 making clear that though. Colleges have institutional needs, and they're really picking students to meet those institutional needs. That the people making these decisions are also human beings who who fall in love with students. And the one I forget which college it was said, I would lie down in traffic for yeah. that girl. Right. And so so part of it is don't cut and paste. Write a love letter. Right. Help help a school know who you are and fall in love with who you are. And if they if they don't choose you, it just means there's another interest. But at least, you know, put your put your truest self forward.
1: Right. Because even though I said earlier about institutional needs, right, it doesn't mean that you it's impossible if you don't meet that institutional need you know all five check marks on that institutional right, right, need right. that you're not going to get in um you know as the, This is a human process uh and and everybody has a bias and and one of the biases that I saw was that they see kids that looked like them at the age of eighteen. Uh, and so if you're a first-gen student or you're a student who might have struggled in calculus in high school but really did well in English, for example, and really want to be a poet or whatever it might be, right, they see themselves in some of these applicants. And, and they really do advocate for them, especially when it gets down to that last, those last couple of weeks, which I talk about in the book, the idea of shaping. And this is, this is something that I don't think when I talk to most parents and students going through the process, they, they quite understand how this works at the very end of the admissions process. They really think like, well, they look at my application once and I'm either in the accept pile or the reject pile. But, but for a group of students, for a group of applicants who are kind of close to the line, they're either just over the line and in or just below the line and not in. Right at the very end when the models, when they do these very uh, sophisticated uh, calculations Because really, remember, what they're doing is sending out invitations to join the class, right? And there will always be students who say no to even Harvard when Harvard sends an acceptance. So they're sending out more invitations than they actually have room in the class. And they know through their computer models who will accept and who won't, or the approximate percentage of who will accept and who won't. And so what they're doing at the very end is they know how many people need to be in that accept bin. And they often have way too many students in that accept bin. And so at the very end, what they're doing is cutting out students um, or sometimes moving students in that are close to the line. And that's what this process they call shaping. Uh, Harvard calls it lopping because usually Harvard (laughs) is lopping kids off uh, at the very end. And that's the part that um, we're especially where admissions officers, if they if they have a, a soft spot for somebody, that's where the, they have sometimes the best chances of getting somebody in, uh, where where they have there's a favorite student that they had in the admissions process, and and again they're just over the line, or in most
0: most cases they're just under the line. They could push them across at that point. Well, and that's one of the th- things that I I think would surprise parents and kids is this idea that um, colleges really aren't pitting one student against another I mean the, the 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 lacrosse playing girl from you know Albuquerque to the you know debate boy from Chicago or whatever um, and and you know because so often when folks don't get admitted, they sit there and say, "But what about that guy? He's such a dope, boy. how did she get in? I don't understand it." And you know, we we tend to put ourselves our well, our perceived merits against their perceived merits or perhaps demerits. And uh, and 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 you make the point in the book, particularly when they get to that shaping part uh, part of the process, that it re- it's not really Ned versus Jeff; it's what is this? What does this ecosystem of this class look like, and what what needs do we? Are we still trying to, to right? To and fill? what
1: are we missing, or or what do we need more of? And and so I described the process in depth at Emory, and they split them into regions, right? And so sometimes they're making bigger cuts in the southeast, for example, where they're more popular because they're in in Atlanta, and, and so it just be just by chance you're in, you know, you're in Georgia and you might have less of a chance of, of, of getting in, but there might be this student in Wyoming that they really want and they're able to get them in at that point. I think you brought up a great, good good point, Ned, and I, I talked about it in in the introduction of the book, this kind of us versus them uh, process in, and you, and you see this, I'm sure, uh, in your work, right? Never, because, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and I tell this little anecdote in the beginning of the book from Eric Ferda, uh, who's the Dean of the outgoing Dean now of admissions at the university of Pennsylvania, who talks about these letters and emails he gets soon after acceptances go out in, uh, in, in April at Penn or in late March at Penn. And, uh, and he says, I always get these letters and it says like, well, my Johnny didn't get in. And, um, and he said, you know, I've been getting these letters for years. That's nothing new, but now often the letters don't say why my kid is so great. It's by, it's, it's usually about the kid that got in and why that kid doesn't deserve to get in. And so we really do see it as, uh, you know, Jane down the street got in. So that means my son or daughter didn't get in. Uh, and he, and he really does see it as this, uh, us versus them, mm. uh, you know, equation that many
0: parents have, um, have come to the conclusion that admissions is. Wow. That's hard. And, 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 sort of last point that I'll pivot, but the, I think it's helpful and you did a nice job again of helping folks see this, that students are truly evaluated in the context of their schools and lives i know that the college board had that environmental context which you know i think was was a solid idea i'm not sure that that college admissions people wanted to leave that in the hands of college board But the idea that, I mean, you know, when you're looking at at shaping the class at Emory, you know, a kid who had a 1500 on the SAT who didn't, and 3.96 GPA whatever, did not get in. And then another girl, you know, with 1130 who does, but from a wildly different context. And I suppose this can make people hopeful. It could probably also make them completely nuts because we, we, everybody wants it to be purely meritocratic. Unless they're going to lose that game, in which case they're all about holistic or vice versa. Yeah. No, it's, it's interesting. In fact,
1: when you look at the polling, uh, most parents and students or most Americans think, you know, test scores and grades should matter most in admissions, which they do unless they don't have the grades or test scores to get into the place that they want. And then they think you should look at the whole student. So it, it depends on how we feel about, uh, you know, getting in and whether the chances of our son or daughter getting into that place about how we feel about what should really count. But you're right on the high schools. The, in fact, I, I write a whole chapter on in many ways, the unit of measure that admissions officers are looking at is the high school. And what are the opportunities that applicants have had within their high school. And so, you know, you could go to a high school that has, you know, 20 30 APs or whatever and you could go to a high school that is five. Uh, and what they're looking at is the context of you within that within that high school. And and it really presents a catch 22 to applicants because if the institution knows your high school well, that also probably means there's many applicants from your high school and you're, you're in essence competing against those other students. Uh, but at the same time, if they don't know your high school well and you're the only applicant from it, and this happened a couple of times and I mentioned it in the book, and you're the first applicant from that high school in four years and they never visited this high school, you know, they're looking at your grades and the high school profile and they don't know what to make of this, uh, of this high school and they may not want to take a chance on you because they don't know that high school as well. Uh, And that's interesting because I think this fall, in some ways, high schools might matter more. Uh, And I think Mm -hmm. institutions, because again, they will be missing some key numbers that they've had in the past. And I think at some places, admissions officers might fall back on the comfort level of knowing, well, you know, we get a lot of students from this high school. We have a comfort level in their preparedness. Maybe we'll take more this year
0: from that high school. Oh interesting interesting and a, a point along that uh, along that line that um, many kids from this school going to applying to that college or we've never we've never seen someone uh, from that school um, one of the things that comes through over and over and over in the book is is how um, kind of how narrow, really, the thinking of people, and particularly kids, is in applying to colleges. You know, it's got to be atop this. It's got, you know, grace that I just want to go with where they're, you know, driven kids, right? Um, but, But you mentioned Naviance. And yep. basically peer pressure. Can you can you talk about that? That was that was I always assumed that so much of this pressure was parents saying you gotta, you know, you gotta step up for the family so you can put Yale on the bumper sticker. But you really talk about how kids look around, look sort of signaling from other people, their peers, of it. is that is that a good place to apply to or not? Yeah, so I think some of it's signaling, and, and I had students who I profiled in the book who
1: basically asked everybody around them, what do you think of this <laughs> school? And if they never heard of it or they didn't have a good opinion of it, they crossed it off their list, but you hmm. brought up Naviance. And, and there was a study that I quote in the book by somebody at, at Harvard Ed School that looked at the impact of Naviance on college application choices from those high schools. And they looked at a, at a big district with um, you know lots of, of students who applied to college over the years. And what they found is because Naviance is only doing that you know, f- scatter plot that they do, when they have enough data to do the scatter plot. meaning there's enough kids who have applied from that high school uh, over the years, it tends to narrow then the schools that are with, you know, within Naviance at that school, at that high school. And so you're Ned, or I'm Jeff, and I'm going in and I'm using my school's Naviance. And I put in a school that students, previous classmates or previous students at that high school never went to, it's not going to be a Naviance. And I'm like, oh, either it's not a good school or I don't know my chances. So I knock it off my list. And I tend to go back to the same schools that classmates or students from that high school apply to the year before, the year before that, and et cetera. And so it really ends up narrowing the list to a set of 10, 15, 20 schools that everybody
0: ends up applying to from that high school. Oh, Perfect recipe for self-perpetuating craziness, right? And and I should I should back up. Can you define for us really what is a selective college as you see it? Um, because that number about ten twenty, it's you had a great statistic in there that really floored me.
1: Yeah. and so, I, it's, um, so it's really, I, I, I look at it, you know, there's probably about 200 schools or so. This is actually a shocking statistic. There's only, there's only about 200 schools that have an acceptance rate under 50%, meaning they accept one out of every two applicants who apply. 200 schools. By the way, there are thousands of schools out there. Right. You know, The average acceptance rate is like 65%. So this idea that it's really hard to get into college is just not true. When you have the average acceptance rate being sixty-five percent, and so I define selective schools as those that are under fifty percent, and then there's kind of the uber-selective schools that are under
0: twenty percent. That's even a smaller number. It's more like you said fifty that, or sixty. You said the yeah, act. I couldn't believe that. I was forty-six or whatever yeah. it was. It was, just, it, was it, it it. To your point, if you're in one of these schools or a parent of a kid in one of these schools where everyone's applying seemingly to the same ten or twenty schools, it feels like it's. It's impossible, or that Frank Bruni line of you know Stanford drives acceptance right. admission accept admissions right to zero. So, so part of that you you sp- I love the term um, buyers and sellers. I thought that was super useful. Can you can you explain what you mean by that and how families can use that to evaluate? colleges and, and really think about this this admissions process?
1: So I think in in, in some places, Ned, when, when students are going through the college search process, they really think about the college, whether they're going to get in. Is it a good uh, academic fit? Is it a good social fit? They don't talk enough about finances early on hmm. because they think, well, either, you know, especially students. My, you know, my parents will be able to pay for it because you know, most students have no idea their, their parents' financial situation. Parents think, well, we're not really going to talk about money yet. We'll talk about money down the road. You know, I think everybody believes, oh, we're going to get one of these merit scholarships or one of these discounts that everybody talks about. So nobody really focuses on the money enough. And, and in the book, I, I spend a lot of time talking about this new construct that it came up for the book called Buyers and Sellers. And, and and the vast majority of of colleges are buyers, meaning they need to buy students they need to give them a discount they're not well known uh, they don't get enough uh, students to fill uh, their their beds sometimes or their classroom seats uh, and they do they're the ones who give out the discounts and by the way, there's some good names that are buyers and and it has nothing to do with the quality of undergraduate education. Uh, It just means that they don't have the name brand of the sellers, of which there are very few. There are about 50 or 60, uh, by my calculation, of sellers. And those are institutions that have something to quote-unquote sell, and usually a brand name. Uh, They get way many more applicants than they have uh, room for. Uh, When they make an offer, by the way, when they make an admissions office offer, many students say yes to them. Uh, usually a third, a half, or even in some cases, uh, two-thirds of students uh, say yes to that admissions officer offer. So they're really popular as as a result. Those sellers, by the way, don't give out a lot of financial aid to students who don't need it. They really focus most of their financial aid on high need or really needy kids. And so what ends up happening is that upper middle class and upper class students end up applying to those schools because they're highly selective, Uh, They have that name brand and they think, well, you know, we'll figure out how to pay for it. And then they get the financial aid offer after they do get accepted and essentially it's zero, right? We're not going to give you any money. And they're shocked. They're shocked. How can I get no money? And what they didn't really realize is that there are all these schools out there that are buyers, that are good schools uh, as they define them, but they didn't apply to them because they didn't really think of this financial calculation. And so what I'm trying to do is to when the, when students and parents are putting together their list very early on is to make sure that the list has some buyers on that. And, and, you know, and again, these are, these are top 50, in some cases, top 25 schools, whether they're national schools or liberal arts colleges, that I think that, that parents should really think about and students should think about having on their list. Because otherwise, if all you have are the sellers on your list, you're going to end up like some of the students I profiled at the end, who get into their quote-unquote dream school but they can't afford
0: it mm. a hard a disappointing end to a to a college journey right yes college and, admissions journey
1: and you still go so you know grace uh you mentioned grace was a, a a student that i profiled in the in the book and she gets into wellesley uh which is one of her top schools but they don't really offer any aid she's from california you know she's at ucla incredibly happy uh, because UCLA, as an in-state student, was much less expensive than Wellesley as an out, you know, out-of-state and private institution. Uh, but but to her, she didn't realize that until it was too late. Uh, and everything worked out for her in the end. But the the anxiety and the emotion that she went through to get there was probably it wasn't it wouldn't have been as bad. I think if she came to this realization much earlier on that she needed to have a mix of institutions on her list.
0: About in terms of what you can afford. Yeah, yeah, know know what your budget is before you go shopping. And that was just to echo that point. One of the things that I think was is will be really surprising to parents and kids reading this book that merit aid really isn't a merit. It really isn't. Merit yeah. Can you can you explain how it's really? Would you call it a coupon? Right, it's a coupon, <laughs> I, right? And it, it doesn't sound great as
1: a coupon, and that's why yeah. colleges call it merit. Yeah. It's a discount. It's uh, it's so. And what ends up happening is that institutions get it's actually foregone revenue. They actually never even mm. get the money because what they're doing to you is they're saying, "I'd rather get uh, three students who can pay." Uh, you know, twenty five thousand dollars each then I get one student who can't pay anything, uh, because I that's gonna cost me a lot more money and, and if I could get three students who could pay twenty five thousand dollars each, I could reuse some of their money to get that you know, one of those uh more needy more, more needy students. But 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 students love these merit aid scheme, as I call them, schemes in many ways, right? They they think that they're getting a scholarship. Uh, and as I point out in the book, in some cases, some of these students are, to be honest with you, mediocre academically, but they're still getting scholarships because students want them uh, fi- for financial reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we we tend to think of of financial aid is something that only goes to, to needy students, but the big change in higher education over the last couple of decades is this idea of of, of merit aid and using it as a hook uh, to bring in to bring in more middle income, upper middle income, uh, and even wealthier students
0: uh, into institutions. And, and to, I, to put a point on that, a lot of folks I've read a lot of articles of, of people understandably being upset, outraged, concerned about money siphoned off—you know, air quotes—siphoned off from need-based financial aid to go to merit aid, and it feels like how can you do that? How can you do that? But as you just made. Made clear and, and talk about in the book, colleges really need to use that merit aid to bring in the folks who can pay twenty five thousand rather than right. nothing, so that they then have the resources to give the full, you know, full financial aid to someone who can't pay anything. And it's it's, it's, it's a really tricky. It's a, ba- balance. it's a
1: balancing act, right? It's a balancing act, and we could say we don't like it. Um, again, it's not uh, you know, it's not fair. It's whatever it, you might think of it, but it's the only way that the financial Mechanism: The financial equation works for colleges and, and universities because most colleges and universities, even the fairly wealthy ones, don't have enough money to basically say anybody who wants to come, you know, who we think is academically qualified,
0: can come. Doesn't matter how much money you make. Many things are not fair. Um, you, you, you talk. You have a whole chapter in the book about the role that admissions office within a high school can play. And that certainly is one of the places where we also see fairness or unfairness, you know, popping, you know, crop in, popping up its you know, ugly head, that, that um, a good admissions department can make such a difference in helping kids. Yep. But sadly, a lot of the kids who most need help aren't getting that help. I mean, you talk about Chris, you know, and, and Michelle Bailey, without whom, who, yep. you know, he, would have been a, he ended up in a much better place with help than he would have without.
1: Yeah, it's great. Chris, uh, Chris grew up about probably an hour from where I grew up in in northeastern Pennsylvania, and and is where he lives in central Pennsylvania. Essentially, central Pennsylvania reminds me so much of where I grew up. Uh, didn't really have a counselor. You know, most kids at his high school didn't go to college. Uh, it was also a place that most college counselors didn't go to visit. Hmm. In fact, as I mentioned in the book, he was more likely to see a military recruiter than he was to see a college recruiter. They had about as many college recruiters or college admissions officers come through that high school the entire fall than a suburban high school where I live in Washington, D.C. would probably see in a day or two. Wow. Uh, And so it's, it's really incredibly uneven. And so he was really lucky that he was at a school that was a sign from the National uh, College Advising Corps, which is this great program uh, started by no- Nicole Hurd, uh, which places recent college graduates from across the country in underserved schools. And 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 Michelle Bailey uh, was placed in Chris's school. She was a graduate of, of Franklin and Marshall uh, College, and in. in when she saw his test scores uh, and his grades, and he was really one of the top students in the school uh, you know thirteen hundred plus on the s a t at a school that where the average I think was like nine thirty or nine forty um, and she saw that and she saw his grades, and she really increased his sights on in terms of where he could apply uh he would not uh, he ends up going to Gettysburg College I probably gave mm-hmm. away something in the book though. it's still worth oh, reading well. people pick uh, it up it's, it's a great story uh, <laughs> crack tells and us that he I, ends up
0: the dead at the top of Everest we know that on page right. one it's still <laughs> a great <laughs> read
1: and so but he ends up a place that he would have never even thought about
0: if not for this counselor um
1: but you know there's there's Tens of thousands of high schools probably like this, you know, compared to the other high schools that I was in where you had a dedicated college counselor, right? They didn't even have to, they weren't the, you know, the usual school counselor who's also doing social, emotional, or other curricular Mm -hmm. issues. They had dedicated college counselors. That's all they did, right? So this is the unevenness that colleges themselves are the recipient of, right? So when they get applications, they are dealing with schools that uh, are on one end, uh, of the spectrum that have all these resources. And then on the other end uh, that have very little resources and, and they're getting applications from, from, from both. And, and they're trying to have to figure out how do we assess
0: these different students? Wow. You know, as, as we start to wrap up all, I think of where you wrap up the book and t- and making the point that the college admissions system in many ways it's not a system. It's so it's so completely uneven, just as you described, of, of of kids who have all the advantages to begin with, and then have added, you know, pr- great college counseling help and blah blah blah. And here's this talented kid from kind of the middle of nowhere with great potential and great promise. And if it weren't for that one person, that one system helping him, but if, when there are thousands of colleges, thousands of high schools across the country. You know, you talk about in the book about undermatch, and to, you know the idea that a kid ends up at a place that's not academic enough, not competitive enough for her to really grow as a person, as a student. What well, what seems to me what we're really talking about is undeveloped potential, and that's terrible for the kid, right? But it's terrible for his family and the community and the and the whole darn country. You you finish the book with with um, suggestions of what we can do, what, what students might do differently, what parents might do differently, what the government might do differently. Can you talk us through some of those things? Because, well, you know, if people listen to this thing, oh my gosh, the whole system's broken and, and I'm never getting into a good college. Um, but you suggest that there are ways moving forward that can make this work better, not just for your kid or my kid, but, but for all of our kids. Right. Well, some of the things have been suggested before and, and probably...
1: Very tough to do. So we talked earlier about early decision. I actually think we should do away with early decision, uh, largely because I think, and we saw this this spring in in many schools that the the, when you apply early decision because you have to apply by November first by most schools uh, for to most colleges, your junior year ends up becoming your senior year in terms of the college search, and so you spend so much time effort. Uh, And I think for the mental health of students, like they should be enjoying high school a little bit more. Um, Yes, even if you apply regular decision in your senior year, you're going to be starting testing, obviously, in your junior year and things like that. And you're going to be taking tough courses in the spring, but you're not going to have as much pressure to get everything right junior year to apply. Hmm in the fall of your senior year. So it's one of the things I would love for institutions to do away with, but because of the financial pressures, it's gonna be very hard for them, uh, for them to do that. Um, I think that there should be much more effort on quote unquote recruiting students. I talk mm-hmm. a lot about athletic recruiting uh, and athletes are really guided through the, if you're an athlete, you're really guided through the admissions process, unlike any other student. And I wish that more colleges could spend time recruiting students like they recruit athletes. The big thing that I talk about in in the book that I think this is more this is easier for colleges to do is to really kind of rethink the application for what really matters and in part of and I love the common app I think it's been a great resource in in so many ways so this is not a, a knock against the common app but but what ends up happening because of the common app you know you have Ten spaces for extracurricular activities, and you have so many essays you need to write. And there's a competition, I think, between schools to make sure they have as many essays and supplemental materials as everybody else does, right? But many times they end up not really paying much attention to those things, hmm. uh, or not really looking closely at them. And they're and everybody is jumping through these hoops. And so schools know, and we we talked earlier, especially after COVID, why students succeed on their campus. Colleges know this. They have so much data on students. They can reverse engineer all those, those students' careers. They know what they did in high school. And I wish that more schools would really focus on what really matters to succeeding on that campus, designing their applications around those things and asking only for those things, rather than so then this way, not everybody feels like, oh, my God, I have to fill in 10 spots, for example, on extracurricular activities. Uh, what really matters to you? Is it two or three? Talk about why those two or three matter to you. And let's forget about the six or seven, seven others. That's what I really wish would happen as we
0: think about the future of, of admissions. And any thoughts on, you, you, you can start where well, I started a conversation saying, um, it would be surprising to families or to kids how... Short is the period of time that that uh, the admissions people look at their you know look at their um, transcript. You know they they would like it. You know if if admissions folks could have more time in January, February, and March. Yep. And one thing that kept coming to me um, is, well, gosh, if you had twenty thousand applicants rather than forty thousand applicants, right, <laughs> you would double the amount of time you can spend. For kids, I know you have a whole chapter about that. You know, uh, Bill Royal and and marketing U.S. News and World Report, and that's you know a a conversation for another day. But but you know Charlie Deacon at Georgetown is is you know purposefully you know said if. If I'm trying to find the needle in the haystack, let's not double the size of the haystack. Make, make the haystack much right.
1: Pecker, bigger, right? You're going to find those those needles. But but boy, do people love every spring, they love to tout those numbers. <sighs> We're, because to them, applications is a sign of popularity. The more applications they got, the more popular they are. Uh, but we all know that they haven't increased the size of their class. And, and that's another recommendation that I make, that I think some of these selective institutions could, without quote unquote, diminishing their quality, increase the size of their incoming classes to allow more students access to these great institutions. Uh, and, and, but what we're seeing is kind of this arms race around app because applications mean they're more popular. Mm-hmm. If they get more applications and they, uh, you know, they could decrease their acceptance rate uh, just naturally by doing that. Um, you know, there's all these little games they play to look more popular and more selective to external groups, including the rankings, um, and that to me is not in the best interest all the time of
0: students. No, it sure isn't, it sure isn't, and I think both for when you talk about Grace and you know looking at Wellesley, that that students are in this bind where they're, they're they start out wanting prestige, and then they've been hamstrung by price, right? You know, and, and people really having to make that that, that trade off between between price and prestige. Um, and colleges doing, the, doing, you know, I, I suppose to them prestige is, you know, that, that does become the, their, their, their source of revenue. But um, it doesn't, in the end, serve kids as well. And, and you know, you start the book saying that it's, it's really, the, these are businesses and colleges and first and foremost meeting their own institutional interests. Uh, and kids are part of that process, but they're not the primary focus, which is a little bit challenging. Um, but I like where you talk about in the book, and maybe it's a great place for you to to wrap up things for us. That that where and I know people don't believe this, and I know I'm a test prep guy, but that <laughs> where you go to college and a lot of literature on this sh- proves not to be as important as you say is how you go to college. Right. And can you um, talk us through that? Yeah,
1: so it's, in some ways, it's a, it's was the topic of my last book about there is life after college, and and we know from the research. That yes, the signal of the degree matters. I'm not going to discount that. But what ends up happening with most students, and you know this from your own work, Dad, is that it's not like students are looking at Princeton and a college that's like you know 50 spots lower on the on the on the U.S. News rankings or 100 spots lower. Right They're, they tend to be looking at colleges within a certain uh, a clump of of institutions, mm-hmm. right? And so you know, in terms of selectivity you're, you're not going to be going, you know, so the the difference between Princeton and Harvard and Yale is, is zero. Uh, And, or, you know, and or even between the top 10 and the top 30 in the, in the U S news and and world report rankings. And so what I talk about both in this book and the last book is that once you get to college, it's the courses you take, it's the friends you make, it's the professors you find, it's the research you do, The projects you do, the internships, the mentors, all that stuff is what makes your successful career in life after college. And Mm. that can be found, by the way, at hundreds and hundreds of institutions, Mm. not just five and not just ten. And that, to me, is what it was interesting to me that the students I followed during this book who saw this as a journey of discovery, who saw the college search as a journey of discovery about them, about them as people and individuals, were the most happy with their outcome at the end, rather than those students who saw it just as a process of jumping through hoops. Because those students who ended up growing and having a growth mindset during this process ended up just being much happier at the end about where they ended up. And it wasn't just about that, you know, bumper sticker on the back of the car where their parents can talk about at a cocktail party about where they're going. It was about where they felt they would fit in best uh, and where they felt they can succeed the most. Uh, Because I think those students who end up just kind of jumping through the hoops, they get there and they're not quite sure what they're going to do now uh, because it was all about getting in Mm -hmm. uh, instead about what they're going to do once they're there. I mean, they ended up just being in some cases disappointed about what was on the other side of that supposed rainbow. And it wasn't that pot of gold that, that many students think it is. And so I, I just tell students to be true to who you are and I understand at the age of 18, you're incredibly changeable uh, and that you might change your mind every week. You might change your mind every month and that's okay. Keep your parents jumping. It's okay, right, it's okay. Uh, enjoy, you know, it, think of it as a process of growth, not
0: just as something to continue to check the boxes. I love it. Well, Jeff, thanks so much for joining us. Um, folks, the book is Who Gets In and Why? A Year Inside College Admissions. Uh, I think September 15th. is September 15th, is that? 15th exactly so it comes we, out. By Early, By Often. Uh, it's a great book. You'll Whether your kids are just going in this process or a few years out, I think it's a great inside look of how the how the, the sausage gets made uh, and will help you understand the process and guide your kids better and deal in a way, as Jeff says, that makes them not not just successful, but in the end, happy. Thanks a million, Jeff. Hey folks, Ned here. Over the past 25 years, I've talked with thousands of parents of high school students, parents who care deeply about their kids' education and how they deal with stress and the pressure to succeed. But these parents need to work with a team they trust won't just pile on more pressure to achieve better grades and scores. This is why I started PrepMatters in 1997, to create a different kind of experience for test preparation, tutoring, and college admissions planning. This podcast and my books reflect our company's philosophy and approach to helping students. If you have a high school student and would like to talk about putting in place a plan, please get in touch with us. Visit our website at prepmatters.com or call 301-951-0350. That's 301-951-0350. Thanks.